All right, well, good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day to you dads out there. Um, it is uh, a joy to be with you via video. Uh, and you might be asking yourself, why is Jer on video? Well, I, like you, make a lot of mistakes. And uh, I made a mistake this last week. I traveled across the border, uh, not even thinking that there was going to be a problem. Well, there was a problem. Didn't even think about it. Uh, well, it turns out... Uh, I'm here on video now, but I'm really excited and looking forward to seeing you next week on Sunday, as well as at the beach down at Ambleside at one o'clock for our baptism baptisms uh, with uh, Rebecca. So looking forward to that next Sunday. But let me pray for us and uh, we'll get started. Uh, Jesus, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for this text. Uh, it has been a challenge for me. And I'm hoping, Lord, that you will use this uh, for your glory, uh, that you'll use my words uh, to, to glorify you, to, to build up your church uh, for, the, for the work of the gospel. And so I just pray, Jesus, that as we talk about these things of Ecclesiastes 4, um, that you will be honored in them. So I just pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, I broke this morning's passage into three areas. Uh, the three areas are oppression, uh, toil and the king, the oppression, toil, and the king. The first uh, section there, oppression, you can look in your Bibles in verses one through three, and you can see in there, and we'll read it together. It says this, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the, other, on, on the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both, better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And so this section is big, one that we will most likely return to uh, in classes, whether it be a marriage class or a biblical parenting class. But we will definitely return to this in, in the text that we are uh, overseeing here today because this is such a big topic. Um, oppression is no light matter. Solomon is saying that it would have been better not even to be born than to be oppressed. And so oppression is horrible. Uh, now, there are all forms of oppression that, that an individual can face. And I'm sure Solomon, in his supernatural wisdom, has in one way or another seen the, the oppression that has happened under the, under the sun. So oppression comes in all forms, as we all know. Oppression uh, of the unborn by way of abortion. Uh, we see this actually in, in the United States overturning this decision of abortion, which is which is by God's grace happening in that country, but here in Canada is still going strong. Uh, actually, the government of Canada is moving uh, bills towards uh, the, the complete uh, eradication of any government to come to set in uh, rules of, uh, of life. And so uh, with this uh, law of abortion, um, Trudeau and his government is trying to actually set the stage that no one actually can overturn that like the United States. And so just horrible things are going on. But remember Solomon, he, he was one of these kings. He, he was a king that uh, two mothers brought a baby uh, before him. Two mothers fought over this one child because one of their babies had died and they both woke up, brought this baby to King Solomon. And King Solomon was to govern and to bring wisdom into whose baby this was. 
And so in his wisdom, um, he took a sword and was about to uh, cut this baby in, in two and give one mother half the baby and the other mother the other half the baby. And the true mother yelled out, stop, give the baby to the other. And he was applauded for uh, this wisdom, uh, this move of justice. Anyways, in our culture, we have mothers of of the babies, the mothers of the babies killing and yelling, kill my baby, kill this one, uh, for I do not want it. Uh, When we have a small, quiet voice, I will adopt those babies. Um, It's incredibly twisted. It's sad of what our evil hearts have come to in our day and age, but this is what where we are, but this is a form of oppression, oppression of ones that cannot stand up for themselves. We also see uh, oppression in the, in the form of sex trafficking of young boys and young girls, entering them into child pornography, changing their lives forever. And a, uh, an abusive spouse, name calling, manipulation, deception, making light of physical aggression, scare tactics, threats, limited freedom to walk, talk to friends or family, or just to live what many would call normal. These are just a few examples of oppression within marriage. And unfortunately, I've uh, been witness to many of these things taking place in marriages that I've counseled and, and walked with. Um, and it's incredibly sad, some of these stories. But just to be clear, no one deserves to be oppressed like this. I had one husband that I was counseling that Uh, dragged his wife up the stairs by her hair. Um, And he said to me, she deserved it. I need to stop here and pause for a moment. But if any time some of these ring true in your relationship, you need to come and talk to me or talk to a leader within the church and talk to the authorities. Uh, It is not okay to just uh, live the lie that what happens behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. These kind of things need to be out in the open into the community that we might see rightly. See, oppression can and does happen within a family from parent to child, but also from child to parent. I've seen both take place where a five-year-old actually rules the home. In dating relationships, you have couples with expectations exploiting and manipulating their partner uh, to the point oftentimes sexually. Um, It's incredibly sad and again, twisted. See, in the workplace, I once counseled a man that was uh, raped by his boss using the power that he had as an employer over his employee. Again, it took years for this man to share this because of the shame that it brought. Even from governments towards its people, we cannot ever forget the history of God's people. From the Pharaoh killing all baby boys by throwing them in the sea to the 400 years of slavery, to the power imbalance in Rome with the slaughter of Christians in the Colosseum, to the killing of over 6 million Jews in the Holocaust and soon to come and is here already in other parts of the world. We read in scripture, John 16, verse 2, where it says, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. This is already happening in Muslim nations where Christians are being beheaded for their faith, but yet the Muslims are proclaiming this is a service to their God. And here in Canada, we are on a trajectory of deep persecution within the church and it will be hailed as good. So one of the more talked about forms of oppression is the interpersonal oppression 
that takes place between two people, whether married or dating. I've mentioned this already in some of uh, just the, what I've talked about, but I want to go a little bit further. And I actually did some research and some study and, and found out some horrible stats, some really sad ones um, over the course of my study and, and all revolving around young women. So young women from the ages of 15 to 24 are reported that have ever been in an in, intimate partner relationship, almost three in 10, so 29 to 30% of those aged 15 to 24 years experienced some form of IPV, intimate partner violation, in the 12 months preceding the survey. This portion was much higher than that observed among women aged 25 years and older, almost 10%. See, young women were five times more likely than women aged 25 years and older to have sexually assaulted 5% versus 1% respectively, three times more likely to have been physically assaulted 6% to 2%, and almost three times more likely to have been emotionally, financially, and psychologically abused by an intimate partner in the previous 12 months preceding the survey, 28% versus 10%. So as you get older, the likelihood of that aggression, that, that sexual abuse lessens, but yet these stats are horrific. And the world laughs and scoffs, laughs and scoffs at the church for abiding around the boundaries God has given us for marriage. See, the world sexualizes our kids, having drag queens read uh, elementary school kids uh, stories to walking into elementary schools with bikinis on allowing kids to put dollar bills in their bathing suit bottoms it's distorting our sex and sexualizing our kids and we should not be shocked that this is going to create a sexualized culture and more of these stats are going to come um, to fruition See, one stat that was actually really incredibly and in, in what I found incredibly um, uh, Interesting is that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and people of sexual orientation is not heterosexual. So the LGB plus community of women, just women alone. Overall, 67%, almost 70% of LGB plus women had ever been in an intimate partner relationship, had experienced at least one type of IPV since the age of 15 compared to 44% among heterosexuals. So just in women alone, 70% in the LGB plus community versus 44%. Both stats horrific, but 70% have experienced sexual abuse at one form or another. So you put two to two together here. When you make a sex your identity marker and take God out of the picture, you get oppressors and the oppressed. This is the outcome. See friends, turn your eyes to yourself for a moment. Taking away these stats taking away the things that have gone on. Now let's look at ourselves. Look at ourselves and the idea of oppression. See, we need to nail down that we are all sinners liking to break the commands of God on a daily basis. I know within the church, our church, there are those that have been sexually oppressed. I'm sure we also have in our church those that have sexually oppressed someone else. Oppression is about having power over another power over another. It's not just the heinous crimes I've already talked about, but it's having power over another and then exploiting that power for your gain. Exploiting that power for your gain. Now think about it. Put your eyes on yourself. Have you ever put yourself in a power position over another in a relationship? And if you say no to this, most likely you're lying. Because think about it. Think of your evil heart's motivation for a moment. 
And this I I was awakened to early on in my marriage. I'm doing dishes for my wife, loving her, thinking in my head, I'm going to love my wife by doing the dishes because that was her chore. I'm serving her. But in my mind and in my evil heart, all I was thinking is I'm going to get something out of this. Power imbalance. Instantly, I put these things, my doing, my, my loving my, my wife to the point where I'm going to utilize that for gain for me. It's horrible. See, oppression is ugly. That's why in our text, our preacher king, the Coeleth, looking under everything under the sun is noticing this and it's horrific. See, our preacher king is reminding us this is a side of the evil heart that we want to get rid of. And by living in it, he is saying it would be better off that we were never even born. Look at our next section, toil. So we have oppression and now toil, everything under the sun in regards to toil, verses 4 through 12. This is one of the first times that we have mentioned this from the pulpit. We've mentioned toil. We've mentioned many things, but one of the first times we've ever mentioned toil, but not the last time we will mention toil. I say that because this is the 21st time that this word has come up in our, in, in our text and we're only in chapter four. 21 times it's already been mentioned. So let's take a look. We will go through this section uh, verse by verse. There's three sections within this and then one more with a positive spin on it. So envy of a, of a neighbor, look at verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So this section I'm calling envy of neighbor. Last week I reminded everyone that we are all hypocrites, right? That we're all hypocrites, whether in the church or out of the church. We're all hypocrites. Like we've put standards up here and we've never even met our own standards. This is hypocrisy. See, here Solomon is awakening us to another evil of our hearts and that is envy or comparison. And this world is filled with it, isn't it? Like think of the social media, Instagram and Facebook and other forms of social media. You're constantly trying to seek evaluation of your own kingdom or you're envious of someone else's. You're comparing yourself to someone else's living in fear. Like I said, when Facebook first came out, someone introduced it to me and it took me minutes to notice this. And I said, oh my goodness, this is going to create a culture of fear. And this is exactly what it's done. A culture of fear of another person. A culture of fear of, I need to be affirmed by my actions. And if no one affirms me, I'm going to cancel them. They're no longer my friend. This is social media. This is an envying of what is going on. But we can't blame social media completely. Because this has been going on since the beginning of time. We see this in Cain and Abel. Cain envied Abel to the point where he murdered him. We have Jacob and Esau. Esau threatening murder because of the birthright. Right? We have, we have Saul and David. Saul envious over David and his gifts and to the point where he wanted to spear him and chase him all over the land trying to kill him. All based off what they did compared to their neighbor. They were comparing themselves to another and they wanted to kill them. See, we envy people's car, house, yard, family, and attach this envy of another to our identity and worth. To the point, at times, these thoughts are so great, it leads to rash behavior and even to thoughts of actions like suicide and murder. 
Envy is a crazy thing. And actually the Bible has a verse on it and it's formed jealousy. It says in Psalm 27 verse 4, wrath is cruel. No doubt. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? Who can stand before jealousy? This envy of a heart. Look at our next section, verse 5. It says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. I've named this section envy of time. So we have envy of, of, um, envy of neighbor and envy of time. This is a picture. The fool seeking pleasure for self or listening to the lie of the world. You should gratify yourself. Get what you want. You need some you time. I need me time. This is a lie of the world. This is the lie of the evil heart. I need more of me. And we've all said this, or maybe you have people and friends that have said this, and you've heard this around, that I need some me time. I hear it on the radio, actually, all the time. See, there's are sayings we hear today, and, and they're essentially the definition of the fool here, because that's our, our scripture, the fool folds his hands. See, the definition of fool is to live as if there was no God. Everything is about me. So essentially, you're playing the fool. See, but in this case, he has watched those around striving endlessly and turned to do the opposite. And this is foolishness. He has forgotten to look to God and has turned to his own wisdom. He folds his hands together and abuses and misapplies a good truth for his benefit, but it backfires. It backfires on him. So you cannot work with folded hands. Instead of working hard, he starves in his complacency and in his conceit. It says he begins to eat his own flesh. He's starving. Solomon, like I said, has been mentioning toil over and over again. And he admits that toil and work and to have joy in them are actually a good thing. We see this last chapter in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. It says this is way of reminder. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. But this folded-handed man has turned the tables on God's gift, folded his hands, and starves in his complacency. See, work is a gift, but when you are about your self-kingdom, work becomes a chore, doesn't it? Becomes a chore. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, so all the things in the world under the sun, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Lord. These are not from the Lord, but is from the world. See, these, these desires we crave after are of this world. They aren't of God. Rather than devoting our time to prayer and share with others all the beauty of King Jesus, we work on things that fade, right? We, we get better and excel at mountain biking, or we, we take our golf clubs and go golfing, and, and we become better and better. We want to excel at this only to have it fade away. We reno our house, right? To make it look better and better and better only for it to break down and break down and break down and to be sold for someone else. Now, hear me on this. Those things are not bad things. We are called to bring Jesus into them. So mountain biking for Jesus. Golfing for Jesus. Hey, great swing. No, 
Not me. It was the gift that God gave me. That was just by God's grace that I got that ball there. Have you ever heard about Jesus? Can you imagine if we started bringing Jesus into the realms of our enjoyment? I hope we do. I hope we do. Look at verse 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no need to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. This I've titled Envy of Community. Envy of Community. We have envy of neighbor, envy of time, and now envy of community. This is a difficult one to be in, right? To come alone to church, a sports game, a movie, a restaurant, a party, to be the one that's on your own, it's a difficult place to be. It is hard to remember your purpose when it's only your voice in your head. So what do you do, right? What do you do in your loneliness when you're all alone, when you've got nothing else, you don't want to, you see the toil of, of folding your hands and doing nothing. I don't want to go there. So what do I do? I work. And I put all my efforts into doing. Do, 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 do. Work, work, work. Why? And who for? Me. To the point where I don't even look for a wife or kids because you know what? Adding that would just wreck my toil and my, take away from my riches. You see, this in man as well, wrapped up in pornography. It's an example out there that is happening over and over and over again in our culture. Not just men, but women as well. But dating becomes a danger, right? Just like wife and kids will become a danger to serving myself, this is also a danger. I'm serving myself with pornography, so therefore my wife is a danger. Dating is a danger because I have to expose these things of my heart. And so dating becomes a danger in a game of guarding the evil in your heart. But, but if married, the wife lays in bed seeking companionship while the husband is about himself, giving to no one but himself. It's a danger. It's a toil. It's an envy of community, of community of me. I want what I want for when I want it and how much I get it. See, within the church, it's equally dangerous. It's equally dangerous, church. See, we become familiar with faces but have no idea who the people are we sit beside. The lie in your head begins to say, you know what, I'm fine on my own and they don't want to know me anyways because they haven't talked to me, so I won't talk to them. See, I'm busy, they're busy, let's just keep working. See, it's an envy of community and a lack thereof. And I've been talking to a couple families already, but I would love to just explode this out to, into the church. And we, we remember when I first started back in September, I challenged all of us to invite someone over to your home. Get to know them. Tell them your story. Pray for them. This is what community is. This is what church community ought to look like. And so there's a couple of couples that we're going to just start inviting people over on Sunday night and having dinner. And then pray for them. Read a psalm together around the dinner table. Bring Jesus into that environment. That's true community. If you don't bring Jesus in, you're no different than the rec center. So we have envy of neighbor, envy of toil, and envy of community. And now look at verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. 
But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, Solomon reemphasizes his point here. Community is vitally important. It's vitally important. It helps get the task done that you need to get done. Right? Two hands working together is far greater. But three, this is amazing. Right? In fact, within Christian community, some theologians suggest the third in a group of two is the Lord. Right? You see this when, you, when two walked the road to Emmaus. The two disciples walked the road and Jesus showed up. You see this in Matthew chapter 18 where two or three are gathered. There the Lord is. So I can see where the theologians are grabbing this from. But Solomon is unpacking the idea of living within a community. So, but can, so look at, let's look at this text contextually. So Solomon here is living in the Middle East. And he's telling stories of one walking in the Middle East. And there's bitumen pits all over the place to fall into. And if you're alone, you will fall into that pit and be alone. You could die in this pit. But if you had another, you could have the other help drag you out. If you're alone on your travels in the Middle East and at night fell, you would lay together and keep warm with a cloak over top to keep your body heat in. And if there was a robber that would come, if you were by yourself, you had the possible disadvantage of being killed and robbed and hurt. But if there was two of you, you had a better chance of survival. See, there's a great advantage to community and friendship. Great advantage. Not just in those practical ways, but within the church. To know one another. To care for one another. To know and to have one another's back in different situations. To step into one another's lives that you've never stepped into before because you now know them. So we have oppression. This is torturous. Even to death. And we have toil encompassed by envy of neighbor, time and the missing of community and what community brings. And last, we have the king. Verses 13 through 16. Let me look at 13 first. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. What a lesson. What a lesson. Always listening, growing and having all the evidence before making rash decisions. See, the problem is we only see what we want to see, don't we? We hear what we want to hear. Do we know the full context of what is going on before we make a decision? And according to Solomon, as one gains influence, even to kingship, it becomes harder to take advice. And what better man than Solomon to evaluate this, looking at it under the sun? Let's take a look at the next two, three verses now, 14 through 16. It says this, for he went from prison to the throne, this king. So he's talking about this king. He went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun. That's a big picture. All the people moving under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. See, this vision of a king is incredible. Many people, but no worship. A king that led the people, but they soon forgot about him. The author, Sidney 
uh, hard name there, said this, even a life guided by wisdom, even a life that reaches the pinnacle of human achievement, kingship, even a life that is exalted by the adoration of millions is futile, useless in the end. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, we need to remember that this world is fractured and Jesus has come to redeem it. We are fractured and Jesus has come to redeem us. See, Jesus has spoken against oppression. Each one of us have been oppressed and are the oppressor. In Mark 2.17, it says this, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Are you well? I know I'm not. I need Jesus. I need help. I'm desperately sick in my heart. So Jesus didn't come for the sick, but I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus had come not just for the oppressed, but also the oppressors. See, Jesus also has also given instruction regarding toil. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. To toil over this world is vanity, but to store treasure in heaven is priceless. So how do we do this? Well, we abide in the two commands that Jesus left us in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. And I'll sum them up. They're on the screen, but it just says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love others as yourself. Sorry, love your neighbor as yourself. Now key on that one. So love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, we've been talking about how much you love yourself. It's all about me. I make decisions about me. I serve my wife, but it's about me, right? Me, 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 me. And Jesus turns that and goes, love God with everything you got and love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Not love yourself more. It's love your neighbor the way you love yourself. This is what Jesus, it's a new way of kingdom looking. So finally, doesn't this passage in Ecclesiastes 4 sound like our King Jesus? Like if we were to read it, right? A king born into poverty. A king that brought justice for the oppressed. A king that toiled not for man, but for the glory of the father. A king that taught his people to love neighbor, spend time wisely, and to live in community. The king that has come to reconcile. A king that was thrown in prison by his own people. A king that was then was then lifted up to be worshipped above all, but a king that was forgotten and still to this day not given the worship and adoration he deserves. See, friends, we have a king. His name is Jesus. And there will be a day that people will see him return for his people. The question we need to ask, are we his people? Are we his people? Or are you lost in oppression, seeking help only from yourself? Or are you one toiling, thinking you can work your way to victory or be your own solution to community? See, surrender to Jesus today. He is your king. He has come for the sick. He has come for the oppressed and the oppressor. And he wants to save you and to be worshipped. May we remember him and look forward to his return. Surrender to Jesus today. Let me pray for us. 
Jesus, I thank you again for this word. I thank you for Ecclesiastes 4. And just the awakening of the oppression that happens in this world is, is horrific. And I pray, Lord, that we'll be a church that begins to look for the, those that are hurting and oppressed. And that we'll help point them to the solution of you, King Jesus. And that we'll look for those that are toiling after things that just are meaningless, that are vanity. And that we might all, as a community, toil for you, Jesus. That we'll work hard as if working for you. And Lord, that we will recognize you, that we won't just be wanderers around this world, not realizing that there is a king, but that we will wander around this world, pointing everybody that we confront to the king, you, Jesus. So I pray that this ministry will, will, will be about making your name known. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we respond in a few different ways here at the shore by giving of your tithes with joy remembering all you have is a gift from from our king jesus and you can do this on our website or here in person at the back in the give box there on the table you can drop your tithes and offering there but don't feel any obligation if you're new here please it's just so great to have you as our guest and i look forward to meeting you in person next week well, we also respond in thankfulness and in time of reflection, you can do this on your own, but I want to encourage you to do it in community as well by confessing and praying with one another. We have prayer couples at the front that will love to pray for you and you can feel free to confess and they'll pray for you knowing that all of you are sinners. All of you need a salvation in Jesus Christ. And lastly, we sing and worship our creator and take communion, which represents his shed blood and broken body for us. He take the penalty that we deserve. And this is reserved, this communion, action of communion is reserved for those that have confessed Jesus as Lord and are seeking to honor him with their lives. So let's sing, give, pray, and partake in communion. Please rise, let's sing. <clears throat>